week's episode of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and this is the show where we talk about how everything in Montpelier shakes out for the rest of us. I want to welcome regular contributor and representative Emily Kornheiser. Hello, Emily. Hello, Olga. Good to spend this time with you today. Good to see you, too. And welcome back to the show, Anne Sosin. So glad you can join us. Hello, Olga. Hello, Emily. Thanks for having me on the show. For folks who haven't met Anne before, um, Anne is a policy fellow at the Nelson A. Rockefeller Center for Public Policy and Social Sciences at Dartmouth College, and she is a public health expert and researcher And thank you for coming back to the show during this um, COVID time again and again to to just help explain this experience that we're all going through, Anna. We really appreciate it. Thanks so much for inviting me um, virtually into your community. (laughs) Well, for the sake of our listeners, I'll just give them the big picture. When I reached out to Anne, I think last week, I did so after hearing a number of news reports about interviews with governors. Mostly I heard the ones throughout the Northeast, but I'm sure there are others talking about how COVID is here to stay and we need to stop thinking of it as a pandemic or a crisis and move into endemic planning to which I said, is this the right time for that? Do we want to do that? Do we need to do that? What are the next best steps? What does endemic mean? (laughs) So Anne, if you wouldn't mind jumping in and first just giving us a primer on what really does endemic mean in the context of a pandemic. Wonderful. Thank you. Um, So let's start with um, a definition or what endemic doesn't mean. Um, Many think that endemic means end of the pandemic, um, but really it means end or endemos, so in humans. Um, And there are a lot of definitions of um, what it means um, for a threat to be endemic, Um, but really um, basic level means that it's attached itself so permanently to us um, that we can't um, hope to eliminate it. And instead we have to think about how we control it over time. Um, And really what our endemic future um, looks like depends as much on our policy choices um, and how we decide to control it as it does um, the nature of um, the virus itself. Interesting. Thank you, Anne. So just in your experience as a public health researcher, do you feel that it's the right that given the course of COVID, that this is now the next logical step? Or is it too soon, too late? I think it's premature for us declare, to declare this the end of the pandemic or to say that we've reached a stable state with the pandemic. Um, we are just um, coming out of a surge um, that has um, resulted in more um, deaths than the Delta surge. As of now, um, we've seen widespread disruption of our critical institutions. Um, and we know that um, these new, new variants and the surges that they drive are a hallmark of the pandemic. And so if we don't start to think about how we put in place um, the infrastructure um, to manage 
uh, COVID um, moving forward, we can expect more disruption moving forward. Um, and so our focus at this point in time really needs to be on how do we build the policy and public health infrastructure to, to manage this in a more sustainable way. And that doesn't mean ignoring um, COVID-19 or as a threat or hoping um, that we don't see another surge. It means it's really starting to prepare. So, Anne, I guess I want to better understand what the difference is between preparing for the next surge or for repeated surges and preparing for it to be endemic. Right. So when we think about something that's endemic, we know that we're going to be dealing with it over time. And that means putting in place the systems um, that we need to manage it. I think it would have been our hope that we could vaccinate our way out of the pandemic and it would not be a persistent threat um, or something that would drive the types of searches that we've experienced. And so right now we need to think, how do we, um, how do, we do our best um, so that it, um, it disrupts our lives. It results in um, less impacts on our health over time. Mm -hmm. So as an example, speak to us of um, a virus or whatever that we consider endemic versus what we're doing now with the with COVID, just so we could kind of give listeners a compare and contrast context kind of thing. When we think about COVID, what we're thinking about it is driving epidemics. So these you know, exponent, you know, ex surges characterized by exponential growth um, of the virus over time. And, and endemic can mean a lot of different things. And there isn't really consensus on what that means. We know that malaria and cholera are endemic. Um, it, uh, we um, HIV is now endemic. Um, and so it really depends on the choices we make about how we manage it, um, how the resources that we invest in, um, where or what parts of what parts of the world or in what populations it concentrates in. And endemic diseases are often diseases of poverty. Um, we know that um, the global burden of HIV, um, malaria and tuberculosis is concentrated um, in lower um, and middle income countries. Um, and um, we have to be really careful in the choices that we make that we don't lie the groundwork for yeah, COVID-19 um, to become um, a disease of the poor and marginalized, um, both in our own country and globally. Wow, that's pretty powerful. Wow, okay. Thank you, Anne. Um, Emily. So when something's endemic, does that mean, I mean, if I think about my experiences working with HIV overseas, um, there would be surges, but they would generally be fairly small and localized. Um, and so when something is in, is there, a, it, like the, you mentioned exponential growth, is there sort of a difference between um, a disease that sort of regularly experiences exponential growth and one well, this is COVID nineteen is a little bit different from HIV because it's a respiratory virus. It, yeah, it spreads much more easily. It, it spreads um, very readily through shared air, um, and so because of the dynamics of transmission, how we think about it is a little bit different. That said, it's concentrated um, in many of the world's poorest countries. Um, the trajectory of the pandemic is defined in many ways by who has access to treatment as well as to prevention. Um, you know, it's not something that 
we often think about in the U.S., but in, in the U.S. as well, it has it concentrated, um, you know, among marginalized populations. Um, so it's HIV has in many ways become a disease of poverty over mm-hmm. time. And so we can think about COVID-19 um, in a similar way. Who's had access to vaccines globally? We know that there's... Um, that distribution has been characterized by stark inequities. Um, there are sharp um, disparities in global access still. Um, when we know those same disparities exist in access to treatment. Um, and we also have to think about who has the tools to control um, both globally and in our own country. Um, and those um, disparities are going to shape um, the future trajectory of COVID-19, whether we like it or not. So, are you feeling right now, um, or or for Anne, what do you feel right now with COVID nineteen as a society? What what would be the best practices right now? So there are a couple of things I'm thinking about. I think first, in terms of um, controlling the pandemic, we need to really build um, what I. Um, referred to before is the policy and public health infrastructure to manage COVID-19 on a sustainable basis. We need um, data-driven policies that turn on at the start of surges and then off again later. Um, I've talked a lot about data-driven mask policies as being a primary tool to control the pandemic. Um, We also need um, to be able to switch on the distribution of masks, tests, and other supplies, um, as well as um, social supports that enable people to access these tools and also um, comply with the public health measures um, that are in place. Um, It's also really important for us at this phase of the pandemic to think about who's still vulnerable to COVID-19 and how do we we enact equitable policies that don't concentrate the risks and burdens of the pandemic um, on most vulnerable groups. Um, We know that in the U.S. there are 7 million people who are immunocompromised um, and can't um, benefit um, fully from the protection of vaccines. We know that children under five remain ineligible for vaccination. Um, and so we need to think about how do we ins- how do we do our best um, to protect them or act in ways that don't um, disproportionately burden um, those groups um, as we look forward. So I think that that's a really critical um, thing that needs um, to be a focus of our attention at this particular moment. Looking forward, it's really important for us, too, to think about what are some of the innovations um, or the short-term protections that we put in place and how do we leverage them or build off of them as we look forward, um, both to address COVID um, and other health um, social challenges moving forward. Mm-hmm. So, and I have a few questions based on that. Um, One, I think about sort of what it means to sustain the public health infrastructure, turn things on and off. I think a lot about how in Vermont, most of the staff that have been responding either as, you know, with testing capacity or vaccination capacity actually are folks with other jobs that they have really completely stepped away from for years now. Um, And what that means both for their long-term job satisfaction and for the strength of our public health resources. And so when I look to, I. I don't, Olga and I must be reading different things because I've seen very little about New England governors and I've seen a lot about California's governor. And so I'm curious, Anne, when you read those, what do you imagine 
And I'm going to actually ask about California specifically, because it seems like it's a resource rich place that sometimes actually does these things fairly well. And so what do you imagine that building sort of an endemic resistant infrastructure in a state like California might look like? So California recognized early on um, that COVID was spread through shared air. And so um, it's employed mask policies um, in smart ways or ways that have often been smarter um, than what's been done in other parts of the country. Um, But we also need to think about how do we upgrade our indoor air? How do we improve ventilation in public spaces? So we know that that's a critical tool that not only makes us more COVID resistant, but also will have benefits um, you know, far beyond COVID. Um, so that's one thing that I think about. Um, when I think about testing, you know, during this last surge, we finally saw um, the federal and state governments distributing rapid tests um, via mail. But what we really need is to have a distribution of tests at scale at the very start of surges. Um, we should have large boxes of testing um, going out um, with priority to communities that are most at risk. Um, You know, this is not something that should happen following a campaign of public pressure, um, you know, over the course of a month. Um, But we need we need that in place um, early on. We might not have um, permanent testing sites in place, um, but we can have um, the distribution of um, tests ready to go um, when we start um, when we're or when we start to see a surge. Is it Ohio that has tests freely available at their libraries? It's one of the. It, it's there's a state right somewhere, <laughs> somewhere in the upper middle. Um, I, I I don't know what um, what midwestern state that is. Okay. Uh, or Connecticut, um, so another New England state, um, distributed um, high quality masks and tests um, early in the Omicron um, surge, um, not perhaps in the, um, in the quantity that we might want, but I think it was a good blueprint for what we'd like to see um, moving forward. But we should, you know, we should not be thinking about two tests or two test kits. We really need 40. Um, we need enough that it's actually going to have a public health impact. Um, and we need that to be done on time. So, and if we're all testing at home, how do we have data-driven decisions? That's, um, that's a great question. And it's the subject of a lot of debate right now. Um, There's a lot of discussion around whether um, we should still be counting cases and how do we count cases if there's a shift towards rapid testing. Um, We're also seeing an increase um, in the use of wastewater um, for monitoring um, COVID-19. And I think that's going to be um, a powerful tool Um, We have to pay attention um, to what communities have access um, to wastewater monitoring or are implementing um, that um, to to make sure that we're actually picking up um, outbreaks um, as they emerge. Um, Others um, are arguing that we should be looking primarily at hospitalizations. I tend not to agree um, that hospitalizations alone can guide our policymaking just because it's... um, for well, for for one reason that it's a lagging indicator, and so it's we're always going to be acting too late if we rely exclusively on hospitalizations. Um, but there's a vigorous discussion right now about how do we, you know, what's the way to do this um, going forward? 
Would wastewater monitoring work in Vermont where so few communities have wastewater systems? It, wastewater monitoring um, is already working in some of our larger communities um, in Vermont, um, but I do think that it, it could be a challenge in some of our rural communities where we don't have centralized waste systems. That said, I, um, I'm not an expert on wastewater monitoring, and so I, I, I do think that it's an example, though, of, of an area where we need to be attentive. Um, mm -hmm to rural communities and how these technologies are just deployed um, for um, disease control in them. And then one other question I have from sort of that, something you said quite a few minutes ago that I had created this pile of questions for me was, um, you know, when we think about sort of ongoing innovation in this space, I've been reading a lot about all of the progress that we've made on HIV AIDS treatment because of how many resources were diverted to COVID um, treatment and prevention. And, you know, I, it's been what, 30, 40 years now that we've had activists and pushing and pushing and pushing for more research on HIV AIDS and as you know, you said before, this has always been a sort of a disease, an epidemic of the um, of the marginalized and now of the poor, quite explicitly. And so, what happened? You know, right now we're able to divert so many financial resources, um, mostly because there's so much profit to be made um, with COVID research and treatment. And so, what happens? to the capacity for research and innovation and treatment if something does move towards this sort of endemic phase? That's a real concern that we sh should be thinking about right now. We, you know, to go back to HIV, antiretroviral therapy was available in the US in 1996. Um, it wasn't until 2003 that the rest of the world began to have access um, to ART. And you can imagine how many people globally died while waiting for um, treatment access. And it's a, I think it's a powerful reminder that biomedical advances alone didn't propel some of the gains that we've seen globally um, around HIV. It was a, it was a movement of, um, that brought together scientists and activists um, you know, to um, ensure access to them. And so, you know, we need um, as much attention um, to developing the technologies to manage COVID-19 right now as to ensuring equitable global access to them. Um, I think that there will be continue to be innovation in the COVID-19 space um, because it continues to pose a threat um, to high-income countries. Um, but we have to be really attentive to making sure that um, the rest of the world has access. And we're already seeing that you know, much of the world has very poor access um, to vaccines right now, and there's a softening of a greater softening of political will to um, to close those gaps. Um, and I am very concerned, um, you know, as that um, if the threat of COVID nineteen recedes here, um, that there will be even less attention um, to global equity in management of COVID nineteen looking forward. Mm -hmm. And that does, doesn't just harm those folks overseas, which is a terrible thing, but it also is an opportunity for the virus to mutate um, because, right? Can you talk it, about that a little bit? It, exactly. 
um, global vaccine inequity is a threat to all of us. It's not just a humanitarian concern. It's a concern for global health security. Um, if we don't um, effectively vaccinate um, the world's populations, then we need to be concerned about the ongoing emergence of um, new variants. Um, and um, so it's really in our shared interest um, to redouble our efforts um, to uh, achieve global vaccine um, equity. So Emily, as a lawmaker, what's resonating for you right now based on what Anne has said? I mean, frankly, as a lawmaker, a lot of what resonates for me about what Anne says is that some things are really best done at the federal level <laughs> um, and actually even sometimes best done at the global level and how challenging it is to try to solve this problem at community levels the way we had our town mask mandates um, or even at the state level, given the sort of the capacity of our Department of Health um, and what they're able to do. And it also, you know, it points to sort of one of the essential challenges in the way our democracy is set up, which is that legislatures and laws are not really designed to be responsive to emergent immediate needs. It's really where, um, where strong leadership in the form of, you know, governors and presidents um, and administrative leads. It's where technocracy actually does have value, I guess I would say, um, which is not something I say very often, but I think, you know, in states of emergency, that's our best case scenario is really a deep politicized and empowered public health bureaucracy, um, which we haven't had in the US for a very long time. Yeah, if I may comment on that. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, since the start of the pandemic, we've seen um, an absence of federal leadership. We don't have to sort of chronicle what happened under the Trump administration, but, we, but we're well aware of um, the deficits um, of federal or national leadership in managing the pandemic. And I think many of us had hoped last year um, when President Biden came into office um, with a much praised um, pandemic plan um, that we'd see a real shift in strategy. Um, he had um, a very comprehensive plan um, for controlling the pandemic and really promised to drive science and equity um, through the response. Um, but the administration has really never fully implemented um, many core elements of the plan. And what's happened is that at state level, we've seen a fragmentation of responses. Um, we haven't had clear federal policy guidance um, to um, shape um, action at state and local levels. Um, we have often, um, or we've seen states take very different approaches um, in absence of clear policy um, guidance. Um, much of the action has happened at a very um, local level. And I think that that's generated um, inequities across, um, across um, many of our communities. Uh, if we can take the case of Vermont, um, the absence of clear federal policy guidance and state policies um, in this latter part of the pandemic um, has led to a very wide range um, of responses um, at our, in, within our communities and also within our schools, um, which have been a focal point of this phase of the pandemic. We have just about five minutes before we have to go and hear from some of our underwriters. So I just want to touch base and see if there's any strings you kind of want to tie up in a bow and before we, we move to the second half, or Emily, I just want to give you that chance to do that. No? Don't think I have anything to add right now. And I know you have more questions um, waiting for me after the break. 
We, I do. And I will just say um, rather selfishly that going into this conversation, I was feeling a little disheartened by some of the conversations around going into endemic planning, just on what I'm reading in the news reports, in part because I feel like we've worked so hard. I guess I was hoping on a definitely on a local level, but on a societal level, that we would be further ahead with this pandemic, that the numbers would be lower, that we'd be seeing fewer if no surges, that fewer people would be getting sick. Um, and I guess I'm feeling a little disappointed that it, it does feel like some folks are right. They're just like, we're just moving on, folks, is how it comes across to me a little bit sometimes. So I'm just sharing that kind of sense of disappointment right now, even though I acknowledge that a lot of people have very deep COVID fatigue, which is a thing as well. Yeah, you know, it's funny, we worked really hard, but we didn't really work very hard together. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, there's only so much you can do when you're working hard on your own or just with like your immediate people. I think that's a good point, Emily. And, and the conversations now are also not really working together. No, no, they're not. It's, um, it sort of surprises me how tired people are of, are of masks. I don't, I'm a I don't really mind my mask that much and I'm wearing it like 10 hours a day right now. And I don't, I, I just don't really get it. And though I'm like a fairly sensitive person about like my skin and sensory stuff and sound and communication and overstimulation, but like, I just, my kid told me I'd get used to it and he was right. <laughs> I, don't know. I actually, if you look at the polling data on masks, um, you know, what we see is that while people are tired of the pandemic, I think we're all tired of the pandemic, there's wide public support for masking and mask mandates or mask policies. Um, and so I think the, you know, two things can be true. We can both be really fatigued with the pandemic, but we also can recognize that we need masks um, as part of our toolkit to control it. Um, I think, you know, we all look forward to a time when we can see smiles again um, and, you know, don't need masks in all of our um, public spaces, um, but we're not, we're not there yet. And most of us recognize that, I think. Well, Anne Sosin, oh, sorry, Emily, want to say something quickly before we... Oh, I just want to share, I sort of, you know, noticed this interesting thing in Brattleboro where we've, you know, had our mask rules in place for quite a while and you know are fairly committed to them is that in downtown it's very very maskful and the second you go to any of the businesses on the edge of town in our strip mall there's no masking at all hmm. and it's just like culture you know culture is amazing so maybe that's part of the conversation after the break I, I stopped by my office for my day job the other day. And when I last was there, because many of us are working remotely, it was everybody has to wear a mask when you're in the building. And people have kind of let that go a little bit. And when I visited on Thursday, I was the only one with a mask in, in the building because I was still kind of trained to, to keep wearing mine in the building. Um, we should hear from some of our underwriters here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro. So stay tuned. The Montpelier Happy Hour will be right back. Hello, beautiful people.
people, and welcome back to the second half of the Montpelier Happy Hour here on WVEW 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. As always, you can also find the Happy Hour on BCTV, as well as our Montpelier Happy Hour.captivate.fm page, Apple Podcasts, and pretty much anywhere you find podcasts. You can also find us there and our Facebook page, The Montpelier Happy Hour, in case you've forgotten our name. If you are just joining us, we are speaking with public health expert and researcher, Anne Sosin, who is coming to us, well, I think from her living room, but normally would be coming to us from Dartmouth College. Uh, thank you so much, Anne, for joining us today. And Emily Kornheiser, one of three reps for the town of Brattleboro, is also with us. So, Emily, what do we need to remind our listeners of? We need to remind our listeners that the views and opinions expressed here on the Montpelier Happy Hour are those of the host and the guests separately, and not those of the radio station or the TV station or any of the platforms they have broadcasted on or any of the employers of any of the people who might be talking to us. I would also like to remind listeners, or just apologize to listeners, for our temporary podcast uploading snafu. We think we're caught back up now. So even though you had to go quite a few weeks with no Montpelier happy hour in your feed, you now get to have all this fun catch up time and just binge the happy hour. Yes. Make yourself a good pot of coffee or tea or cocktail. We highly recommend all the above and uh, catch up. And again, yes, thank you, Emily, for reminding listeners of our technical difficulties. And Talk to us about some of the lessons learned from, from COVID and how can they, they teach us about COVID, about going forward and about public health in general? There uh, was one, um, which is, I think we've all learned how much of our health is produced outside of healthcare systems. I think going into the pandemic, we thought about health as being the province of our healthcare system, something that was really the focus of physicians and nurses and other um, healthcare providers. Um, and we've all learned um, that much of our health relies on what happens outside of there. It's the places we live, um, work, the air we breathe, um, the things that we do that have a tremendous influence um, on our health. Um, and moving forward, um, we think about the ways that um, what we often call the social determinants of health um, influence our health and how we, um, what are the ways that we can act on those other factors um, that shape our health. So that I hope is, is a first lesson. Um, and you know, to bring that back to COVID-19, we only had vaccines um, you know, last year, or I guess it's been more than a year now, before that we were really reliant on community action or what we call non-pharmaceutical interventions. Um, and I hope that we, um, as we look ahead, um, we'll remember the community action and those other things that we do and the things that um, reside outside of our health system are really important. Um, so I hope that that's um, one lesson that we learned. I think the second thing that I hope that we start to understand is that inequity um, is a threat to population health. Um, with COVID-19, um, we've seen um, that the virus 
thrives um, in crowded living and working conditions. Um, and that if we don't have focused attention on places and groups that are most risk at risk, um, that puts the health of all of us at risk. Let me take an example um, for you. Um, when we, we know that prisons um, are a place um, where COVID-19 is spread really readily. Um, we have the congregate living setting um, where um, inmates um, share air. Um, and when, we, when um, we see an introduction of the virus in those settings, it spreads rapidly, but then it spills over into, into our communities. Um, and when you see from data um, that's been collected from um, different settings in the U.S. that places, um, that prisons um, contribute to community spread. And so when, what I hope our um, learning will be is that when we address um, or we target resources um, to populations and groups that are most at risk, um, we um, not only can reduce disparities um, that we see um, in health outcomes, but it also has benefits for all of us in our communities. Um, so that's a second lesson that I hope we'll take. I think a third lesson is that we've seen a number of creative adaptations. We've seen um, the expansion of telehealth to deliver care. I hope that um, that that we um, preserve that and recognize that that is important way, um, um, not only to continue to deliver care, but um, to address um, gaps in access to care, particularly in our, particularly in our rural settings. Um, we've seen um, groups of people that have had better access to care, but not only to care, but also um, to education and to work as a result of some of the um, rapid transformations we've seen in the way that we do things. Um, so I think, I hope that um, instead of rushing back um, to pre-pandemic normalcy, we'll really examine what are the things that we want to preserve um, and sustain um, in our post-pandemic world. How about you, Emily? What are some of the lessons you're sitting with or even even your outstanding questions still? Well, I think um, this, I remember talking about the social indicators of health in policymaking circles a few years ago and no one, it was a really a lot of work to get people's heads around them. Um, and now it feels like it is a little less work to get people's heads around them. And now we need to act on them. Um, and one thing that I think we've learned from the pandemic is that we can act quickly when we need to. And so I hope that we can maintain that faith in our ability to sort of rally around an action when needed. The interrelatedness of our health, I think, is a really powerful one. Anne, and I appreciate you bringing that up um, and how much each of our well-being is very explicitly dependent on other people's well-being in our own communities as well as across the world. And so while I think we are all so overwhelmed right now still and really like traumatized right now, I hope that as we move through that, we can retain that like real visceral understanding of that interconnectedness. Um, and then the last one that you touched on and I'd love to dive more into is this idea that we made a huge number of shifts in what was possible for how we connect with each other that I think were really valuable for folks who might on a day-to-day -day basis have a harder time accessing public spaces. Um, and so that's folks with chronic health issues who might um, need to be sort of at physically at rest more often. It's parents of young children who can't haul the whole family out to go to a one hour meeting. Um, it's 
you know, it, there's a whole lot of people in our communities. It's elderly folks. It's a whole lot in the winter. It's a whole lot of folks in our communities who really, really benefit from Zoom um, and from Zoom meetings and from having events broadcast um, into their homes. And while there are pieces of that that I think certainly exacerbate isolation, they also really create a lot of opportunities for connection. And so I hope that as we move more of us move back into being in person with each other. We don't just half-ass the public access part of what we're doing. So I know, for example, when the legislature was entirely virtual, we were all in our little Zoom boxes and that was what was on YouTube. And we've made this huge step forward in access by putting cameras in all of our committee rooms so that we can still stay on YouTube. But the picture of my little face is pretty small now, if you watch me on YouTube. And I've heard from a lot of folks who watch our testimony that it's hard to tell who's saying what, um, because the cameras aren't very dynamic. And so what was a real great step forward in transparency, we've sort of tried to keep up with, but I think we've lost, um, we've lost some of the attention there. And so that's another piece that I'm hoping we can stay focused on. I guess I would add one thing there, and which is thinking about the ways in which um, the virtual world has become more accessible to some groups, um, particularly um, people living with disabilities who may have had more limited um, access um, for a variety of reasons. Um, some of our students have said that um, moving to a virtual platform um, has enabled them to participate much more fully um, you know, in um, the learning environment. And so I hope that we really think about it, um, you know, not only how has this opened up our world, but how has it made it um, more accessible and equitable? Um, and then think about what is it that we really want to preserve in all of that as we move forward. Yeah. Thank you, Anne. Talk to us about some of the specific steps we should be taking now, thinking primarily for vulnerable groups, or there's been a lot of talk about schools lately. So if, actually, if we could start start with the school system and what are some good practices right at this point in time? Sure. Let me start with the question about schools and then maybe we can take um, the question about um, vulnerable people um, separately. Um, so um, we've made great progress um, in our state um, in continuing um, vaccination programs, but it's really important for us um, to continue um, to maintain um, the mitigation strategies um, that we have in place um, to ensure that our schools remain not only safe, but also um, stable um, for in-person learning. We've seen widespread disruption of our schools over the last several months, only intensified with the Omicron surge. And we really want to do everything we can um, to ensure that we don't reverse um, the progress um, that we've made over the last um, couple of weeks as we've started to come out of that surge. And so that means um, maintaining um, masking policies and other mitigation strategies um, until we get to a better place. It also means continuing um, to close gaps in vaccination. Although we're more vaccinated than other states, um, we still haven't achieved the vaccination level 
levels that we need um, in children. And we see um, disparities um, in across our state. Some counties are much more vaccinated um, than other counties. Um, so, and the other thing that we need to um, keep central in our thinking um, is who in our communities um, remains vulnerable right now. Um, we, and the mitigation strategies that we have in place in our schools protects um, those members of our school communities as well um, as people who are at high risk um, in our broader communities. Um, and we can talk a little bit more about that. Let's talk a little more about that. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> You know, as I mentioned um, earlier in the conversation, um, 7 million Americans um, are immunocompromised um, and many of them can't benefit fully from the protection of vaccination. And we have new um, therapeutics that are coming online um, that will um, provide um, added protection for some people. But we know that supply of those treatments um, remains scarce um, and that there are um, there are challenges and access. Um, and so it's, so we need to go back to thinking about um, how do we as a community um, protect um, those members of our community um, that are most at risk. And that means empl employing um, mitigation strategies. So layered um, or layered approaches to mitigation um, in our public spaces. Um, we um, also know that children under five can't yet be eligible for vaccination. And while many of us might think, well, um, most of the um, most you know school aged um, children now are protected, and the educators um, that are working with them are protected. Um, what we sometimes forget is that there are vulnerable people, um, both in and linked to our school community, uh, school communities, um, and that those other measures that we take um, help to protect them right now. We know that there are educators. Um, and families with young children who can't be vaccinated. Um, we also know that there are high-risk educators or those who share households um, with them. And so we really need to continue um, to think of the pandemic as a, uh, as a collective or community problem rather than, um, and, um, and rather than one um, that just, um, that is an individual problem. And you mentioned taking layered approaches to protecting our public spaces. And I think you touched on it a little bit in the first half, but I'd love it if you could just give examples to help people um, understand that. Like what would a layered approach look like? Right. We often look at the Swiss cheese model, which shows different layers of protection um, and that those layers include vaccination. Um, but we also, um, we also think about masking and testing and um, you know, quarantine and isolation um, and the social supports that we employ all as being part of um, the many layers of protection. And we know that these layers work best in combination um, with one another um, and not in isolation. And we know that they're best deployed as a community rather than at an individual level. And Why is it called the Swiss cheese method? I'm so confused about that metaphor. Because we know that um, any one layer has holes in it, like a, like a piece of Swiss cheese. But when we layer those pieces on, it's much um, less likely um, that we'll see um, a breakdown um, in the protections that we have in place. So the so hole doesn't go through the whole block of cheese. It's in different places. Thank you. Yeah. That one. And the real concern is that, you know, as many of us are individually at lower risk, we have 
um, more protection um, from um, vaccination and now um, from infection as well, um, that we start to forget about who's least um, or who is most at risk um, or continues to be at risk, and we concentrate risk and burden on them. Um, and it's it's really important for us to think um, to have um, to really think about how do we um, how do we continue to sustain um, those la- layers of protection um, in ways um, that don't um, that, that that don't concentrate risk on. Um, the, um, many in our communities. Are there Interesting. policies, sorry, Emily, just quickly, are there policies or practices happening right now, um, particularly in regards to COVID, but if there's a, another um, public health issue you want to touch on, that is an example of concentrating burden on, on the most vulnerable, as you just mentioned? Uh, let me talk about something that's being proposed um, right now in the context of the conversation around schools and why and um, why I think um, it's it's the wrong approach. Um, so many are s- suggesting that we should roll back um, mask mandates in school settings um, and that we should rely on one-way masking to protect vulnerable people. Um, we know that masking is most effective when it's done by everyone, um, that, it, that um, universal masking confers greater protection on everyone, um, including those who might not be able to mask or mask effectively in our communities. But I also worry um, that resorting to one way um, masking um, also can be highly stigmatizing of people with a chronic illness or at higher risk. Um, Many people in our communities um, have invisible illnesses um, or disabilities, and so masking is one way that they might be identified. And I worry um, that there would be other social consequences um, for those that are masking. You know, I'm concerned that some young people um, would be forced to choose between um, revealing a um, they're uh, revealing an illness and conf- um, and conforming um, to the social norms in their community, which may not support um, masking. And so I think that that's really um, a misguided approach um, and one that really erodes um, the sense of solidarity um, and collective response that we need. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. Sorry, Emily, I, I interrupted you just then. No, no, no. I mean, we were, I don't know if I was interrupting. I think we were having mutual mutual moments of speech. Um, I, you know, interesting sort of in that context of thinking about our most vulnerable, I find in my own household, you know, my son has a friend who lives with both of his grandparents who are both quite medically vulnerable and how helpful it is to be mindful of this boy and his family situation when we're talking about what we're doing as a household, that that awareness of someone who's medically vulnerable in not even our direct circle, but our indirect circle really helps us make sure that we're making the most appropriate decisions around sort of doing a rapid test before um, going for a long drive in the car together or something like that, you know, for my son and his friend. And it really helps sort of reinforce all of the existing best practices that we know that are there, which at this point in the pandemic, sometimes, you know, we see other people maybe not doing them or it starts to feel like I've been doing this for so long and it hasn't, you know, I haven't seen a direct result. So maybe I shouldn't, you know, continue on with this. So that's been a really, it's been an interesting way that we've navigated it. It's like with this really direct awareness of these folks in our lives. And I wonder if from sort of a public health communication perspective, 
it might be helpful for more of us to get more in touch with the folks in our community who really need us to be thinking about them. Yeah, I, I think it's really important that we rehumanize the narrative around this because oftentimes it's framed around around overcautious people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we um, forget um, that vulnerable people are threaded through our lives. There are teachers, there are coworkers, there are family members, and are you know just as our lives depend on them, their lives depend on us, um, and we really need to hear those stories come out and to recognize um, that you know our health is interconnected, our lives are interconnected, um, and so I agree with that. And I and I also think we need really you know, strong policy advocacy to ensure um, that the choices that we make right now um, um, don't disproportionately um, burden um, them. Uh, And, you know, one way that I often think about this is that we should, um, we should continue to rigorously mitigate all of our essential settings. And that includes our workplaces, our schools, um, and other places that people need to access um, to meet their basic needs. I focus a lot less on recreational activities or social activities. I think we're past a point in the pandemic where we're going to impose restrictions on those types of things, but we do need to ensure, um, you know, especially when we're in surges, that everyone can continue to meet their basic needs um, in the safest way possible. Yeah, I remember when um, we were first talking about the masks in schools and that it was guidance rather than a mandate. And um, there was a lot of talk from the administration about, well, it's just one school in just one district, you know, that's not doing this. And I have a good friend who is parenting an immune compromised kid in that school district. And so like, yeah, it's just one school, but there are kids in that school and families in that school and vulnerable people in that school. And so like, just the idea of just sort of throwing out the health and safety of that one town is just it's wild to me that that would that that felt like an option for people. Yeah, I've come to understand that mandates equal equity. Um, they mm-hmm. everyone and they ensure that everyone has the political, technical, and material resources um, to protect themselves and the communities around them. We know that um, better resourced um, communities are much in a much better position to implement some of these measures. And it's really the places um, that have much more or less in the way of resources um, get left behind. And so while many in a community um, like that may not be particularly supportive of mask policies, um, having a mandate that comes down um, um, is helps um, to protect those those vulnerable um, members of those communities, um, even in the absence of broad public support for those measures. Um, and so I think of that as something that, or the absence of a mandate is something that really concentrates risk and burden on families um, like the one that you're describing. Um, it's really, it might not be important to most, but it's incredibly important um, to those that really need those protections in place. So well said, thank you. I think one thing that's, and just for listeners, there's some noise happening in my building. So if you can hear it, I apologize. I think what astounds me about the pandemic over and over again is how often we compartmentalize every, everything, society, borders, whatever. But, you know, this sense that, um, well, it's only one school in one district, but that school is still a community and communities touch each other. 
or <laughs> folks who like live, this happened, I think a lot between Vermont and New Hampshire, you know, you live in Vermont, you work in New Hampshire or vice versa, and you've got different mandates or different rules you have to follow. But like, there's this sense that the COVID will stop at the border somehow. <laughs> and I just, I keep coming back to that and, and just being astounded by that piece of human nature sometimes. I'm wondering, Anne, do you see that in your work? Do you see people kind of compartmentalizing things like that? Definitely. I live in a border community, um, and so I cross the border multiple times a day, uh, and everyone around me does as well. Um, and so, and viruses don't respect those boundaries. Um, we live, learn, work, and play um, across state town and state lines. Um, and so we need um, public health um, measures um, that transcends um, those boundaries as well. We are just about out of time. So I want to touch base with Emily and Anne. Is there anything you want to leave listeners with before, before we head out? No, I think Anne had a mic drop moment with that, um, talking about how mandates create and reinforce equity. And so I want to that is the thought that I want us to sort of sit with because it is such a, I think it's a flip in thinking for a lot of folks. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for that, Anne. Anne, anything you want to leave listeners with? Don't think I have anything to add. Well, as always, since this COVID and public health is ongoing, we, we hope you can come back to the show again in the future. If folks want to check out some good resources on public health, learn more about um, the work you do um, or at Dar or Dartmouth College, where can they go? Um, I have a bio on my um, center's um, site at the Rockefeller Center um, at Dartmouth. Um, and you can access some of the other things that I've written um, and done online. I've written a number of opinion pieces, both um, in the Vermont press um, as well as in the national press. Um, Thank you, Anne. Emily, where can folks find more information about you? If you go to emilykornheiser.org, you can find links to my email and my phone number and my weekly office hours, as well as on my blog tab, you can find my weekly newsletter. Fantastic. As always, you can find the Montpelier Happy Hour on WVED 107.7 LP Brattleboro, your community radio station. And Emily, what should we toast to today? Every week when I get home from Montpelier, there is a new flower blooming in one of my indoor plants. And I think it's a metaphor for something. I'm not sure exactly what it's a metaphor for, but I want to toast to whatever it means. <laughs> Cheers. Thank you. Hey, everyone. We will be back next week. So looking forward to you joining us again. Take care. Uh -huh.